A Good Night, A Good Night to You, written by Isabel Cook and narrated and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Two women, I say women loosely, sat in a bar. They ordered more wine. For a while, all was fine, but they could not hold their liquor. A flicker of interest peaked theirs, but with only one bloke to go round, there was soon a spat and one lay flat. The man and the other, she was a tart. They sat and sipped. He was not equipped to spar with such as her. She, rosy and flushed, soon showed her claws. She did not so much purr, a spit and hiss, and thumped him with her taloned paws. The one on the floor shouted, Encore! She laughed till her sides split. Then the man tried to pick up another painted chick. Never mind, darling, said the tart to her friend. That chick's welcome to Dick. Dick took the chick a little way. She wasn't playing ball anyway. She repelled boarders, told him to get lost, and unceremoniously gave him his marching orders. The tart and her friend laughed some more, before wobbling home to sleep it off on the bare boards of somebody's floor. My Angora Rabbit. It was written and is narrated by Andrea Weeding. Shushy bought this rabbit. Only you can make that decision. <laughs> I do enjoy. I have a tatty bunny. There's nothing I can do. Set brush her day and night and hope that she can poo. I feed her pineapple and papaya, parsley, curly kale and pellets. Fill her china bowl with water. Put Timothy in her a hayricks. But the morrow brings disaster. Her fluff looks like candy floss. Her knotty dewlap is a fright. It's as though she's never seen a brush as she skips about in delight. The future threatens fur block and rising veterinary bills. Maybe I should brush her all night to help prevent these ills while wearing warm pyjamas and munching tranquilizer pills. We have two poems for you. The first is called O Corona by Rosemary Emmett and the second is Invisible Foe by Isabel Cook. Oh, oh, Corona, you with a wicked persona, you've made me a moaner and a reluctant loner. We are locked in day and night, so soon we began to fight. I've scrubbed and polished till my hands are sore, now I can see my face in the floor. They tell us at the end of the tunnel there will soon be light. They tell us pigs fly in the sky. I hope they do before we die. Invisible Foe Ignored but oh so respected. Acknowledged but so rejected. Politicians answer all. They're oblivious but oh so on the ball. Speeches given, objectives driven, cross-party. What we need is hope and clarity. Words spoken, just a token. Read between the lines in these unprecedented times. We must put our trust in people of power in this dark and unknown hour. The divide is bridged. They're out on a limb, they're on the ridge. Come back the invisible foe that causes thousands heartache and woe. We must believe there is a way, we need help, 
and we need it today. Will the people steer us true and find a path to guide us through, come united as one nation in this time, this unknown situation? Yelvertoft to Welford was written and is narrated by Felicity Radcliffe. This poem is called Yelvertoft to Welford. I should explain that I'm lucky enough to own a narrowboat and I enjoy cruising England's beautiful waterways with my husband and my dog. As I drift along, I write poems about different sections of canal and it's my long-term ambition to cover the entire canal network in poetry. Um, now this section, from Yelvertoft to Welford, is located on the Leicester section of the Grand Union Canal and all the landmarks mentioned in the poem are actually real. I'm proud to say that this poem was shortlisted for a writing competition organised by the Canal and River Trust. I hope you enjoy it. Yelvertoft to Welford, Grand Union Canal, Leicester section. Let's bid farewell to tranquil Yelvertoft and brave the gales that scour the countryside, where ivy holds a blasted tree aloft and charcoal crows ride thermals eagle-eyed. Past bushes crammed with autumn fat berries and honeyed hay bales in buzz-cut pastures, through broccoli-tight knots of verdant trees, gliding gently on greasy grey waters. At Welford Junction, where sleek otters play, our boat turns eastward towards a shallow lock. Beyond it, tall trees shade us on our way to excavated lime kilns by the dock. As sun surrenders to a twilight grey, we make haste for the wharf to toast our day. The Big House was written by Alice Goulding and is narrated by Julie Stark. The woman who sat in the corner of the railway carriage with her eyes shut was attracting a good deal of attention. She was facing the window, and as her head rested against the wall, her tiara was nudged out of place, so that her veil cascaded over her arm like a lopsided waterfall. The third finger of her left hand was bare, and her wedding dress was creased beyond repair. Bunched up on the seat beside her, it resembled a half-melted snowman. On the shelf overhead, a red bra strap escaped from the confines of a small case, stuffed so full that it bulged at the seams and threatened to burst open. From his seat opposite, Ross recognised Claire from a family photograph. She was prettier in real life, despite her crumpled state. The absence of a ring indicated that the wedding ceremony never took place. Claire woke with a start when her pink, sparkly phone buzzed and lit up. Her eyes were the same cerulean blue as her grandmother's, and Ross was struck by the warmth and strength that was reflected there. Her grandmother would be relieved to know Claire remained unmarried. Leave me alone, Claire muttered wearily. 
and then she pasted a smile on her face and answered brightly, Sarah, I'm fine. There was a pause. Ross wondered what drivel Sarah was spouting. No, you're right, I'm not fine. Why did you suggest I ask Jack? I walked in on them, you know. The best man and the groom having sex. I was after a handkerchief, for heaven's sake. Watching a blue movie with Jack and Luke as the principal actors was not the blue I had in mind. Ross smiled. At least she still had a sense of humour. What else had she found out about Luke? She drummed her fingers on the table with pursed lips, then shook her head. No, it's over. Even I'm not stupid enough to marry Luke now. She was silent once more, and everyone in the carriage was silent too. Their ears fine-tuned to hear the next lurid line in this soap opera that was her life. They were not used to such excitement on the 520 express service from St Pancras, but they were in for a disappointment. No, nothing, thanks, she said. I'll be all right. Bring you next week. Claire felt all eyes were upon her. But when she looked at her fellow passengers, there was a great deal of phone scrolling and rustling of newspapers. Everyone pretended that they weren't interested in her little drama. Everyone, that is, apart from the man watching her from across the aisle. He appeared to be grinning, but she wasn't sure because he was half hidden beneath a forest of ginger hair. Flowing locks, thick moustache and bushy beard. She imagined he was either the lead singer of a heavy metal band or a Scottish Highlander. Claire glanced beneath the table, half expecting to see a tartan kilt, Sporran and Dirk. She shrugged. She must look deranged herself, sitting here in her wedding dress, a modern-day Miss Havisham without the mouldy cake, cobwebs and rats. Good old, boring Claire. Doormat extraordinaire. The train was slowing down. Haston was her stop. She'd have to change before she descended on Gran. It was going to be a shock for her. Poor Gran had sprained her ankle and couldn't make the wedding. At least Claire could safely say she hadn't missed anything. She reached for her case. Bloated with hastily packed items she'd stuffed in it. Her red bra protruded from under the lid like the tongue of a thirsty dog. Almost tripping over her long skirt, she made a hasty exit from the train and headed towards the ladies to change into something normal. Ross heaved himself out of his seat and noticed Claire had left her phone behind. How on earth had she missed that sparkly pink piece of kitsch? He pocketed it and stepped onto the platform, glancing up and down to see where she'd gone. There was no sign of her. His Land Rover was parked in its usual spot and he climbed in. He was wondering what to do next, when he saw her. She changed into jeans and a red top and carried the case in one hand. Over her other arm, her wedding dress trailed behind like a broken sail. Hello? Claire Harwood? called Ross. Have you lost something? he asked, holding up the pink phone and waving it to catch her attention. 
she stopped and held out her hand. Thanks, she said, eyeing him suspiciously. Do I know you? Shaking his head, he passed over her phone and said, Rosh McLeish, I work for your grandmother. I thought you might be Scottish, although you don't have an accent. I've lived in England too long. A wee twang creeps in when I visit the family, though. I can see you in a kilt, she said with a grin. Maybe later, if you're lucky, he chuckled. Do you want a lift? That'd be great, thanks. I've had a rather stressful day. Conversation dwindled as Ross drove along the country road. The Land Rover rattled as if every nut and bolt was loose and threatened to come apart if jolted by a deep pothole. Do you want to talk about it? What? Your stressful day. That was the last thing Claire wanted to talk about. She had been betrayed by Luke and Jack. Sarah swore she hadn't known anything about them. Claire didn't believe her. I couldn't help noticing your outfit on the train. Either you were on your way back from a fancy dress party or... I cancelled my wedding because my ex-fiancé was a cheating... She used her extensive knowledge of expletives and didn't hold back. And I never want to see him again. Glad we got that out of the way. Where are you staying? At the cottage. That's what Dad called it. We always stayed there when I was small. My grandparents preferred it that way. When were you last there? Years ago, she admitted. My dad was still alive then. After he died, we stopped coming. Mum remarried. When I was old enough, my stepfather sent me away to school. He was generous, gave me an allowance when I went to college. I can't complain. Sorry about your dad. It was a long time ago. I was seven. But I still miss him. Claire tilted her head towards him. Why am I telling you this? I never talk about my family. Ross shrugged. Once you get over my mountain man look, you realise I'm soft and cuddly underneath. Claire laughed. He was right. She trusted him, and after the day she'd had, that was quite an achievement. Ross left Claire at the cottage to get settled and drove up to Haston Hall to report to Lady Harwood. Claire's grandmother was resting on a chaise long in the morning room. Her hair was swept up into her usual French plait, and she was simply dressed in a pale blue silk blouse and navy skirt, with her ankles covered by a soft plaid blanket. How is my granddaughter? Surprisingly well, considering, said Ross. Moving a chair closer to her, he sat down and asked, how much does Claire know? I'm not sure. She was only seven when her father died. Claire was an adorable child and my husband loved her. If her mother had been, well, nicer, shall we say. You mean less mercenary? That's it, my boy. Exactly. She kept her from us 
I was allowed to see her a couple of times a year. Her mother looked after Claire's allowance until she went to college, when my husband arranged to have it transferred to her directly. Her mother didn't like that. From what you've already told me, I'm not surprised. Is Claire like her mother? No, she's more like her father. Lady Harwood smiled. Do you like her? Claire? I do, but don't get too carried away. She might not like me. She's going to love you, Ross. You're a good man, and your father was my son's best friend. I'm so glad you're managing things for me. Claire was lucky she found out the truth about Luke before she married him. Ross knew that only too well. He'd seen the investigator's report. Luke was a fortune hunter. Claire didn't know about her trust fund, or that she was heir to a fortune. Her so-called best friends, Jack and Sarah, did. They came up with the plan to marry her off in order to have indirect access to Claire's money. Now he'd spoken to her, Ross was positive Claire wasn't in love with Luke. She'd been caught up with the wedding. She was an event planner. Her skills would be invaluable in generating revenue to save the hall. He hoped it wouldn't take long for her to get over Luke and Jack's betrayal. Ross wanted to believe that Sarah didn't go through with their plan and had, instead, ensured that Claire discovered Luke and Jack's secret before the wedding. Much as she had wanted to, Lady Harwood refused to tell Claire what she'd discovered about Luke. Ross knew the decision had been an impossible one. She didn't want history to repeat itself. After all, her son, Simon, had married against her husband's wishes, which had caused all sorts of trouble. Lady Harwood didn't want to lose her granddaughter by forbidding an unsuitable marriage. Do you want me to tell her? No. I think it has to come from me. Do you think she'll ever forgive me? Of course she will. Ross reached out and squeezed her hand. It'll all work out. I'll go fetch her now. After a cool shower, Claire rummaged through the wardrobes in her bedroom and was surprised to find clothes she'd worn when she was a child. She smiled. It was comforting, in a funny sort of way, to see all those memories jumping out from her childhood outfits. The red jumper she'd worn when they went searching for conkers. The tan jodhpurs reminded her of Scruffy Pete, the pony she learned to ride on. The polka dot swimsuit she was wearing when she jumped in the lake, and her dad had jumped in after her. They all brought back happy memories of holidays spent together here at the cottage. Perhaps Grand had kept them for the same reason. The cottage had brought her closer to her dad. Claire remembered it had been a happy time. Was it too painful a memory for Mum? Was that why she'd never brought Claire back for a visit after her dad died? Claire wished she'd made more of an effort with Gran. She hadn't even checked up on her after Gran rang to say she couldn't make the wedding because she'd sprained her ankle. Meeting her in town for shopping and lunch once a year wasn't the same as visiting her at home. Her mother had told Claire nothing about her dad's family, 
and it was time to own who she was. She'd start with an apology for neglecting her, and then ask Gran to tell her family history. Her thoughts were interrupted by the loud rumble of an engine. It was Ross in the Land Rover. She hurried down to meet him. Your carriage awaits, the lady, he called, pretending to doff his cap. The Land Rover bounced along the winding drive. Claire saw the old rambling house in the distance. It was just how she remembered it. But as they got closer, Claire realised that it was an old Elizabethan manor house. Welcome to Halston Hall, beamed Ross. Come and meet your grandmother, Lady Harwood. What? It all came flooding back. Dad had always called it the Big House. The only big house around here was Haston Hall. And Gran lived there. Bird was written and is narrated by Julie Stevens. I'm imagining what it would be like to fly in this poem. It's called Bird. I scooped handfuls of pink confetti, gave it wildly to the sky and watched it float down to my hair, cheeks, nose, wings. And there I was, perched on my branch of blossom, singing thanks to my velvet landing and wings of release. My beak looks fine, don't you think? Playing this rousing tune to all around, collecting delight in my chocolate opal feathers, skinny legs like hers down the road, and royal stretching wings. But I can't stay. I need to taste the lift once more, feel the rush and hover light knowing I'm safe. I'll return to the grind when I'm done. These wings show me what it's like to soar. Come now, ride with me. You won't stumble in clouds. The Birthday Boy was written and is narrated by Helen O'Mahony. Albie always has the best parties, exclaimed Agnes. Oh yes, came a chorus of voices, followed by a lot of laughter. Maureen the matron thought he was looking particularly handsome in his new blue suit. He had just finished telling someone a joke and was now doubled over <laughs> with laughter. She smiled to herself and guessed it was probably a rude one. He was a vision of happiness surrounded by friends and family, and it was obvious that he was much loved. It had taken her several weeks to track down some of his old pals from the British Legion. 
Her efforts were rewarded when she saw the smile and look of amazement on Albie's face as he noticed some familiar faces among the arriving guests. It was heartwarming to see. Once or twice she had noticed him dabbing away a tear as he chatted to them. He had often told her stories from his military days, yet what he remembered most was the camaraderie and the simple things like sharing your last cigarette with a mate. He was never self-pitying or bitter, even though she knew he had made and lost countless friends during those terrible years. Most of all, he had time for others, and although he liked to chat, was also a good and sympathetic listener. Someone had put on dance music from the 1940s, and it had the effect of livening everyone up. Suddenly there were three ladies trying to pull Albie up to dance, and he was having to choose between Agnes, Rose and Elsie. In the end, just like the true gentleman he was, he fulfilled all his dancing obligations before sitting back down again and lifting his well-earned whiskey. The music and revelry carried on late into the evening and gradually the guests made their way home. Later Maureen, surveying the scene of the party, felt very pleased that everyone seemed to have enjoyed themselves. Before going off to bed, Albie had come to her and taken both her hands in his. Thank you, love, for all your hard work, he said. That was a smashing party. Smashing. And seeing all my old mates like that, well, I can't tell you. He had tailed off, overcome. Then he'd kissed her hand and went down towards his room. The following morning, Maureen got up early and was glad to see the sun peeping through the curtains again. She put the kettle on and set off to call everyone to breakfast. First, she stopped by Albie's room and knocked gently before opening the door. She knew at once. He looked so peaceful, and the sun was shining softly on his face. She looked slowly around the room as if to fix the scene in her mind. There, down by the side of his bed, was the pile of detective novels, with his glasses on top. On his bedside table, the half-eaten packet of chocolate digestives and a glass of milk. On the dresser, a family collection of photos, and his medals in a silver frame. On the end of his bed were tied a bunch of helium balloons, which said in jazzy letters, 100 and still fantastic, and finally on his windowsill, his pride and joy, a birthday card from the Queen, with a picture of Her Majesty on the front, in matching yellow hat and coat. In all her years as matron of Greenacres, she had never met anyone else quite like Albie, and she doubted she ever would again. A sob caught on her throat. She stopped, swallowed hard, then took a deep breath and carried on down, the corridor to tell the others. The Parcel was written by Isabel Cook and is narrated by Becca Cook. Do enjoy. The surprise delivery sits in the hall with stern brown paper that beckons and calls. Don't open till the 22nd, it clearly states. 
but impatient with anticipation, it's hard to wait. It sits so enticely, curiously staring, looking at each other, wondering, should I be daring? And open the paper and look inside the box. Pretend I've not seen to the onlookers outfox. But no, I just wait until all are gathered around. Then I can honestly make the ooh surprise sound. One more day to go, it's passing is slow. One more day to go before I can know. The contents revealed for all to see. The contents revealed will belong only to me. The day has arrived, glorious and bright. The gas have arrived, it's time to unite. I ripped the brown temptress, then and there. Oh, I exclaimed and examined the pair. Diamond earrings sparkle and shine, and I'm delighted to say they are only mine. The poem you're about to hear was written by Jean Fairburn and is called Winifred. And it is a letter to George, New York to Liverpool on the 15th of May 1915. And this account is factual and relates to what happened to Liverpool-born Winifred when the RMS Lusitania was torpedoed by a German U-boat off the Irish coast at lunchtime on the 7th of May 1915. Winifred's husband had remained in New York to look after the family business. More than 1,500 perished. And this poem was written and is narrated by Jean Fairburn and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Dear George, I cannot say how I really feel, but believe my mind will never heal. I breathe, was revived, so now I'm alive, but how on earth did I survive? I close my eyes to sleep, but dream of bodies, baggage, bubbles and screams, sliding down upturned decks into water, children and babies, all were slaughtered. The decks exploded beneath Annie and me, dining second class with the family. When engine room stokers ran through our doors, like dinner plates we were smashed to the floor. A sailor pushed me into a lifeboat as the ship's funnels towered over us. I ducked my head. They disappeared under us. I can't gloat. We stayed afloat as soot and cinders spewed out in fountains and the seawater boiled with red-hot oil. Too many people were packed in our boat and using the oars became difficult. A sailor took charge and ditched our coats. Some clinging on were forced to let go. It's awful, I know, but I feel no guilt. On the horizon, nine steamers appeared and we gave them a heartfelt cheer. But they took so long to come to our rescue that many sank silently and slipped under water. Others shouted, then disappeared. George, why did the Germans try to kill me? I hate them. I'm American after all. I'm not at war with the Kaiser. Neither was poor Annie McCall. Winifred. The Verdi Greek King was written and is narrated by Denise Dowdle-Stent. The child of time softly unfurls, petal-soft limbs dew-stained and rose-brushed, silken threads spun from lover's gold, the frosted lace wing rests 
waits, breathes, slowly, carefully, purposeful in its being. Mind thoughts, brittle and rigid, stripped away and laid bare, fragmented. The verdigree king listens for a while. He yawns, smiles his vernal smile, content, at peace, his work done. And so, the verdigree king set down his great mask, and quietness followed. <laughs>